Hello and welcome. I'm Roger Ream, and this is the Liberty and Leadership Podcast, a conversation with TFAS alumni, supporters, faculty, and friends who are making a real impact in public policy, business, philanthropy, law, and journalism. Today, I'm joined by Alexandra Hudson, an alumnus of the TFAS Robert Novak Journalism Program. Alexandra is the author of The Soul of Civility, which will be released in just a few days on October 10th, and she's the founder of Civic Renaissance. Today, we'll be hearing about how Alexandra works to promote civility in our highly polarized world, even when it means telling someone they're wrong and about what giving back means to her. Alexandra, thanks for joining us. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Roger, so great to be with you. Thank you for having me. Let me first begin with uh, your Novak Fellowship Project. Uh, In 2000, you had a Novak Fellowship, and your project uh, had a fascinating title, Making Porching Great Again, How Front Porch Citizenship Can Save Democracy and the Soul of the Nation. What did your research cover during that project? So I, uh, before we, we jumped on this call, Roger, we talked about how uh, I had a conversation with you about an idea for this project when I was in the belly of the beast and I was in the heart of government in this very divided season, very divided moment. And I remember we got, we got coffee and I brought this little piece of paper to you with like some bullet points some thoughts in my head about, you know, things that were wrong with the status quo and maybe some ideas for solution. And um, um, it's funny that that ended up becoming, germinating for for years and then becoming what would become my Novak um, project. But um, I'm someone who loves ideas, loves learning and loves conversation and community. And I remember going into government and being really, really struck by the utter absence of kind of just these these basic things necessary for human flourishing. It was, it was for me kind of an environment of anti-flourishing. I saw these two extremes. On one hand, there were these people with um, sharp elbows. They were hostile and aggressive, and you knew where they stood. Uh, they were willing to step on anyone to get ahead and to get their gain their goals in life. And then on the other hand, there was this contingent. At first, I thought they were my people. They were polished and poised. And, and, and polite. And these are the people that I learned would smile at you, flatter you, and then stab you in the back the moment that you no longer served their purposes. And at first I was puzzled by this, this, this latter contingent. Growing up, my mother who taught manners, she said to me that manners matter. They were an outward extension of our inward character. And yet here I was surrounded by people who were well-mannered enough and yet ruthless and cruel. And at first, I thought there was, these were two extremes, and um, then I realized actually these are these are, were two sides of the same coin because both of these modes of interaction they instrumentalized others. They saw others as means to their selfish ends. One was willing to step on them; the other was willing to manipulate them. The extreme politeness was willing to manipulate others to get ahead, uh, and and but the both but both were willing to use others to to achieve their goals. And um, so I left government, started started you know furiously working on this book after after a year in government, and and fled to the American Midwest. I had in my mind you know 
the rolling hills and the bucolic pastures of the American Midwest. My husband's from Indiana originally, and we had, um, you know, planned to move back there at some point to raise a family. And then when we when we moved there, though, after I uh, after we left gov- after I left government. Um, I met a woman uh, named Joanna Taft. She came up to me after after church one day and introduced herself. Hi, I'm Joanna. Would you like to porch with us sometime? She said to me, and I was I was intrigued. I had never heard the word porching used as a verb before. So curious and intrigued, my husband and I went to her porch that afternoon, and and what I saw surprised me. It, it didn't have the extremes of what I had seen in government, the extreme hostility or the extreme politeness. It was like raw. It was authentic. It was candid. It was affectionate. It was jovial. Um, and I realized that Joanna had curated this, 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 this space on her porch of people across difference, across political difference, geographic difference, racial difference, to just inhabit a shared space together to build social trust and friendship that could enable authentic and real conversations. It was a totally different mode um, of being. And, and I realized that from her front porch, she was staging this quiet revolution, this porching revolution that was her little vantage point from when she was healing, healing our social fabric and healing our world. And so part of my Novak fellowship was was looking at Joanna and people like her across the country who are doing the same thing. They're recognizing that they can't control what's happening in Washington, the, the tweet of the day, the scandal of the day, but they can make their communities, their families, their neighborhoods better and stronger and more beautiful. And that there's power. There's power in that. I've seen it and I really enjoyed from my Novak Fellowship documenting that, reporting on that, writing about it for, you know, places like the like USA Today and um, and many other outlets. Um, so really grateful to TFAS for for that support. And I assume, or you should explain, I guess, that porching doesn't require you to have a physical porch necessarily. You can porch without it being on your porch, right? It's a disposition. It's a way of seeing others like civility. Yeah. Uh, seeing other, others as as um, beings with equal moral worth to us, and that um, and what I so part of my argument in my book and what I observed on Joanna's porch helped me clarify in my mind that there is this essential distinction between civility and politeness. That politeness is manners, it's etiquette, it's mores, it's behavior. Civility is a disposition. It's a way of seeing others as our moral equals. That. Um, that are worthy of respect just because they're people like us. And that sometimes respecting others requires telling them that they're wrong, telling hard truths, engaging in robust debate. And that's what I saw on, uh, on Joanna's front porch. And, and I saw and, 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 and worked alongside and, and observed and met with people across the country who through their civility are, um, are healing our social fabric. Again, with or without a front porch, it can be a stoop. It can be a front lawn. It can be a local coffee shop just holding court. And it's just a way of engaging with others and the world of wanting to transform outsiders into insiders and strangers into friends. And that's the stuff that will change change our world and revive civility in our world. Well, your, your book, which is just out uh, and available at uh, wherever good books are sold, uh, is uh, The Soul of Civility. It's subtitled Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves. It's got a beautiful cover, which I want to talk about maybe a little later. Uh, but it uh, civility is something that's much talked about today. Uh, 
mostly the opposite, I guess, the polarization of our society is, is a subject that people all complain about, but nobody really offers good, a good roadmap to how do we reduce polarization? How do we promote civility? And so I think what's great about your book is you've you've kind of dug down into what these words mean. What is civility? And as you just, you just contrasted a minute ago between manners and civility, uh, politeness and civility. Uh, but give us a quick uh, kind of synopsis of your book and how you treat this subject. So this difference between civility and politeness is central to um, to to my book. Uh, just just to hammer home the distinction um, again, politeness is 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 technique. It's it's behavioral. The Latin root of politeness is polier, which means to smooth or to polish, and that's what politeness does. It focuses on the external alone, and it papers over difference, as opposed to giving us the tools to grapple with difference head on. And so civility, the Latin root, is civitas, all things, which is the Latin root for city, citizenship, and citizen. So civility are is the habits and the mores, the duties of citizenship, which again requires debate, conversation, sometimes even protest. Within my conception of civility, I reclaim the whole tradition of civil disobedience. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s um, system of purification for his not uh, peaceful, nonviolent uh, resistance required that those who were participating in his protests first cultivate a deep love and respect for the white supremacists that they were protesting before they protested them. So again, cultivating that inner disposition of love, of affection, of basic respect that that enabled and demanded that they take action and through their actions, you know, tell hard truths and confront them with the with the monstrous nature of their of their racist and bigoted views. Um, so again, that's the that's the uh, distinction between civility and politeness. And I and throughout the book, um, I explore why this, why civility is what will promote and sustain freedom and human flourishing in our democracy, and why focusing on the ephemera, focusing on the the techniques and the more and the, and the externals alone is never enough. It will never be enough. If we just if we just try and tone police, if we just try and say let's talk nicer to one another, without looking at the root, the inner disposition of, of like, if we lack respect for others, like talking nicely together is never going to help us actually flourish across deep difference. And one thing I talk about is that this is the most important question of our day. How do we flourish across deep divides? But it's also a timeless question. This is the defining question, not just of the classical liberal project, but of the human social project. This is the question that we've been grappling with since as, as long as we've been around because we are profoundly social as a species. We thrive in relationship and in community with others. We become fully human in relationship. And yet we're also defined by self-love. We, we are morally, biologically driven to meet our own needs before others. And those two aspects of who we are are intention, the social and the selfish. And that is why friendship, community, civilization itself is never a foregone conclusion. It is always fragile. And that's why it's a timeless problem. It's the most important question now. And there are many social uh, factors, um, epiphenomena that have contributed to making um, the problem arguably more severe. 
such as new technologies, but it's still a problem of the human condition and, and no public policy, no panacea is going to make it, you know, disappear like that. So I, I think that that offers a much needed humility as we talk about this issue, that it's not going away. There's no there's no magic bullet. To what, to what extent do you think we need something deep like, I'll, I'll call it a religious revival or a moral reawakening in order to reclaim this uh, classic sense of civility and citizenship and one of you know looking at other people as having human dignity? I mean, it seems like we've gone so far away from this. And as you write you know, a free society requires that we have civility, that we treat others with human dignity. I mean, is it, is it, it's obviously not easily reclaimed and renewed, but are you hopeful? I, I am. Hopeful. Will your book lead the way? Yes. I hope that, you know, I, I hope that my book um, just starts a, an important and much needed conversation. Uh, I, I'm grateful to be the latest in a long, um, lineage of thoughtful observers of the timeless principles of human flourishing, of human nature, of the human condition that have been the voice of reason and moral revival to borrow borrow your phraseology for their generations. For example, did you know, Roger, that the oldest book in the world is a civility book? given to us from ancient Egypt, 2700 BC. It's called The Teachings of Ptahhotep. And so it's the oldest, oldest book in the world, and it's 38 maxims or teachings on the stuff of human flourishing, the stuff of the life well lived. Ancient Egypt is known for its very uh, difficult polarization, I think. You know, <laughs> but, uh, no, that's fascinating. I, I, I was not aware of that, Lexi, so I've, I've learned something new and interesting so talk about it. Yeah. So that's fascinating. The, um, what's funny, what's fun when you read this book, which you, you know, you can do online right now is that it's remarkably timeless and relevant. All of this conventional wisdom about how to do life together. Patahotep, so he was someone um, who had been his whole life in the room where it happens. He had reached the pinnacle of political and, and, and worldly success. And in fact, he was offered a position to be offered to be Pharaoh. And he turned that down to retire a quiet life in simplicity. And, and it was after he retired that he you know, put pen to paper and thought about the stuff of human flourishing. He wrote down these maxims for, for the Pharaoh's son, but also for posterity. And they were very widely consumed across Egyptian society and for many generations. And they continue to be relevant to this day. For example, uh, one of the first maxims, Ptahhotep says, be kind to people whom you have power over. Don't abuse the powerless in society. Don't abuse a power differential. Uh, he says, don't be good to your friends just when you want something. Be good to them all the time just because they're your friends, just because they're people. Patahotep says, do not gossip. And it's remarkable, the continuity across history and culture, the admonition against gossip. Thoughtful observers ha of the human condition have, have noticed that human beings, we love to chitter or chatter. We love to like talk about others to make ourselves feel better and superior. That's an expression of our self-love, of the selfishness in our nature. And in fact, in Hebrew Bible, the word for leprosy is etymologically linked to the word for gossip because just as leprosy corrodes the body, that's what gossip does. To social trust and social cohesion and human and human community, it's really evocative, visual. So anyway, if you look at these teachings of Patahotep, 
they could be in a Miss Manners column in the Washington Post. And they were written, you know, nearly 5,000 years ago. And that's that's just, that's really fun. Like, and I, uh, that was a, a fun chapter to write, my chapter two, where I, I took kind of the greatest hits of this, this civility genre, people who, um, again, they wouldn't have had to write down these maxims, these teachings, these handbooks on civility if everyone were following them already, right? Like Patahota wouldn't have written them down if he thought that no one needed them. Um, I wouldn't have written this book if I thought no one needed it. But thoughtful people who care about their society have have done this for a very long time. Every few generations, they have to sit down and we have to get back to the basics and say, you know, what what is this thing called society? And what is the role that we each have in this joint project of living, this joint partnership of living well with others? And how do we how do we sustain it or undermine it with our daily interactions? There's clearly a connection to this concept uh, to the idea of freedom. Uh, and we, we touch on that a little, but uh, – and you write you've I've, some things I've read that you've written. I can't pull it up right away, whether it's in your book or read it elsewhere. You, you've talked about the fact that if if we don't have this type of civility in society, will we'll, it'll likely lead to more government intervention. And you wrote a column about efforts, political efforts that have been done by Mayor Bloomberg in New York in the past, in London and Paris, to try to in sense impose politeness and in some cases civility on people. Talk some about that. That was an interesting piece you wrote. Yeah. So that's uh, some of that research and those ideas find their way in my chapter uh, three um, on a uh, chapter four on freedom and flourishing. Why civ- civility? Freedom. Yeah. yeah civ- civility supports our freedom and flourishing. And I argue that we each have a role to play in ensuring our government stays limited in nature. Um, There are two relationships. There are two social contracts in human social life. There's the traditional social contract that Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau wrote about and are, you know, very students of political philosophy will be familiar with this. It's the social contract between the citizen and the state. And it got, you know, we, we surrender as citizens certain rights um, in order for the state to protect certain rights. Um, there's also, though, a horizontal social contract between citizens. And this social contract is not governed. Um, it's governed by, by social norms. And that horizontal social contract supports the vertical one. And so if that horizontal social contract is contravened, if that diminishes, then we... Um, our, our 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 vertical social contract, our, our political regime, our democracy, it suffers, and we've seen this time and time again across history. And in that chapter, I talk about a few examples in recent history where um, this has been the case. So, for example, apparently in the early two thousands, incivility had reached this this fever pitch in New York City, and Michael Bloomberg took it upon himself to do something about it. He instituted this whole politeness campaign where New Yorkers could be fined $50 if they were texting in the movie theater, if they were too rambunctious at their child's baseball game and yelling too loudly, if they uh, put their feet rudely on the subway seat next to them so another person couldn't sit down, fined $50, if they spit on the street. You know, like these are annoying, obnoxious, discourteous things, uh, but they're not necessarily something that we want the government involved with. We don't want our daily lives micromanaged in that way. Um, and so, of course, New York New Yorkers did not like being 
micromanaged by their local city government. And that did not last long. And it was also unenforceable. Like if we don't want a totalitarian state watching our every move and 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 fining us for every micro infringement, um, we need to recognize that we we have to have a role of self-control. And there is a there is a role for um, self-governance in our daily interactions that again we own. If we don't want the government to own them, then 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 we have to own them. And in fact, I pivot from there uh, to make the case that Larry David, the creator of Seinfeld and the star of one of my favorite shows, it's a whole comedy of manners called Curb Your Enthusiasm. I argue that Larry David may be the foremost defender of civilization today, because if we don't want Mayor Bloomberg, you know, enforcing manners from the top down. We need, we need a few Larry Davids in the world, the people that are going to like keep you in check. Like he calls himself in one episode, a social assassin. He says, yeah, I'm a social, like he, he's someone that sees someone, you know, doing a social infraction and he'll call them out. He's everyone's like inner, inner ego and inner id. And of course the, 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 the conceit of the show is that, um, that he's always calling everyone out for their social infractions. And then at the end of every show, he falls short of, you know, whatever it is he was calling someone out for at the very beginning. Um, I love the example of, um, yeah. So Larry David, we, we need, we need a few Larry Davids in the world to, to promote, you know, human flourishing and self-governance too many, too many people who are too litigious and calling it that would be intolerable, but a few are good if we want to want government to stay limited. What about the role of, you know, the family, uh, in, uh, develop, you know, strong families are obviously necessary for a strong civil society, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I have a whole chapter on, on education and that looks at both classrooms, but also the home life. Parents are their children's first, best, and most important teacher. And there's this sort of ecosystem that, that has to be at play, um, between, between teachers and, and the classroom and, and the, and the home life where, where, where values pro human values are inculcated and reinforced through through our education. I, I link the ancient uh, Greek conception of education called paideia to modern day civility. So paideia was this wasn't just education, it was also culture and it was also soul craft. It was education as ordering the loves, helping us love ourselves a little bit less and loving others a little bit more. This is how Plato conceived of a just soul and also a just society, an individual whose loves were rightly ordered and a society that that valued the, the right things in, it, in their proper order. St. Augustine um, talked about the ordo Amoris, that we have to consciously cultivate loves that are rightly ordered. For Augustine, that rightly ordered love was the dual commandment, love of God first and others others second, ourselves ourselves less, but how that's not natural to us, that that's something that that is an act of cultivation, an act of the will, an act of nurturing, and something that happens and that ought to happen in our educational systems. And so I look at modern day uh, examples of that. There's a, a fabulous cha- charter school network called uh, the Great Hearts. Academy, their public school um, system uh, network, charter networks in um, charter school network in in Phoenix and Arizona, uh, sorry, in Phoenix and Texas, and they are inculcating these values and this vision of education of, of education as soulcraft as ordering the loves in the secular public school systems. That this is this does have roots in the classical education that. Um, 
that does predate Christian history, but also is in, in, inextricably, inextricably linked from from with Christian history. But it's happening um, in the public in the public school system, really phenomenally, like exposing students to beauty in a way that displaces the self, that un- helps us unself. As Iris Murdoch, the Irish philosopher, said, and help us love others more. Like that's what the project of um, of education is, and and families have an essential role in that. Schools have an essential role of that. That the Larry Davids of the world have a role of that. They they're the ones that come up to you and say, you know what, this is society. You can't just act as if you're alone on a desert island. Like you have obligations to others. You know, like we each have a role to play in uh, in that. But yes, of course, that starts and really ends in the home. It's great the way you bring in uh, so many different scholars and thinkers from Marcus Aurelius to uh, uh, Tocqueville, Socrates and Plato, uh, and, you know, hone in on concepts like respect and human dignity, kindness, truth, neighborliness. Uh, I... I uh, would be interested in talking a little bit about uh, what you'll be doing to now to uh, over the next few months to promote the book. Uh, I know that if people pre-order it, which they might still have a chance to do, I'm not sure uh, we're right around the release date, but uh, I've pre-ordered a copy and you're offering some interesting gifts uh, to those who pre-order. Yes, yes. So I've, I've created a pre-order gift package, a thank you gift package. So everyone who pre-orders the book, go to my website, alexandraohudson.com and um, claim those gifts, $700 worth of gifts. It's a, a, an ebook, um, a whole course called Four Civility Books That Will Change Your Life, uh, a toolkit on how to talk to anyone about anything, and several other um, goodies that I think you'll enjoy. So please, thank you for considering pre-ordering the book and for claiming your your gifts there. And then I'm also putting together a summit, a civility summit with some of the most surprising and interesting thinkers and practitioners of our day. I just got off the phone uh, off of uh, my conversation with George Will talking about the habits of a democracy, the norms of a free and flourishing society. Uh, Mitch Daniels, former governor of Indiana, uh, David French of the New York Times. Um, I, I interviewed Francis Fukuyama about this yesterday, exploring social trust, the role of social trust and, and cohesion in society. And um, just really grateful. Uh, Jonathan Haidt, Tyler Cowen, uh, Kim Scott, Chloe Voldery. So really grateful for the, the people that we have lined up. Uh, they care about this topic because it is an, it's an essential and it's an essential topic and essential question. So please join this free summit. It's called Civility, overrated or underrated. If you just Google that, it'll it'll pop up on Eventbrite. Please claim your free spot, invite others, and and join us in this essential conversation. Uh, let me add that Mitch Daniels is a uh, was a previous guest on this on the Liberty and Leadership podcast and is a trustee emeritus of the Fund for American Studies. And of course, a Hoosier out there with you and your husband in Indiana. So uh, I know our time is running short. Could you talk a little bit about the cover? I mean, it's a it's a beautiful cover art you've done, and it's it's meaningful. And I thought it'd be nice for you to say something about that. Thank you. So I believe deeply in the power of beauty and harnessing the power of beauty, and I sought to do that with the cover. Um, we worked with a wonderfully talented artist, Young Lim. So thank you, Young Lim, for for the creating this work of art. It's 
it's an olive branch. And the olive branch is important symbolically for many reasons. Um, there's a lot of classical connotations in my book, the, for better or for worse, the, the, the Greco-Roman world built the world that we live in now, the world that we inhabit today, whether we realize it or not. And so I did a lot of um, you know, deep, deep learning, deep thinking, immersed in, the, in, in classicism. So the olive branch pays homage to the classical world. Um, in the Hebrew Bible, in the book of Genesis, after God floods the earth, Noah sends out a dove to see if there's dry land and the and, and the dove comes back with an olive branch in his in its mouth and that symbolizes the flood is over and it symbolizes this this rebirth this new beginning this fresh start um and and I I, I my hope is that um, this book can can symbolize a, a a watershed moment maybe offer a fresh beginning for us to have you know new conversations a new era of healing and of course the symbolism of the olive branch being this tool this this symbol of peace and reconciliation um, as well and I love that it's a watercolor um, watercolor is you know a very a very forgiving medium and I talk about forgiveness a lot uh, in in the book and if you look at the cover it's it's very much an active work of art there's there's water watermark speckles you know and i wanted to evoke this imagery as if the artist had just lifted his or her brush off the canvas and i wanted that to symbolize you know that this joint project of civilization is a work in progress it's never fully complete and that we each have a role to play in in upholding it or undermining it um so layers of symbolism there's there's more much more i could actually say on it but um thank you for for noticing and and for appreciating uh the art i think that young Lim did an excellent job so thank you so i i will uh end with just a a strong pitch to listeners to uh, buy a copy of the soul of civility uh, it's, it's, it's worth it for the cover, but it's what's inside that'll really have an impact. I congratulate you on, on, on the publication of the book, uh, Lexi. Uh, and, uh, thank you for joining me today to talk about it. Alexandra Hudson, uh, the soul of civility. Thanks so much for the conversation. Thanks, Roger. Appreciate you having me. Thank you for listening to the Liberty and Leadership Podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, like, or share the show on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you like this episode, I ask you to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question for the show, please drop us an email at podcast at tfas.org. The Liberty and Leadership Podcast is produced at K Global Studios in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Roger Reen, and until next time, show courage in things large and small.